Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Coming at you straight out the lab. This is Dr. Santosh. Hi, guys. Woohoo! And uh, this is your MacGyver ER doc. I just uh, made a shiv out of a spoon. This is Dr. Ward. <laughs> Don't cross me. And, and last but not least, <laughs> this is Praz the Sandman infusing my poison gas across the waves. Although I should add as a disclaimer, I do not actually infuse poison gas in any way, either on the radio waves or in clinical practice to patients. This is purely a euphemism for the purposes of the show. <laughs> I think that's one of the longest disclaimers we've ever had. But, but, but Praz, your, the gases depends on the dosage is yes, poison. Exactly. That's true. Yeah, we're... It's all about dose dependency over here. Any medication you could get is could be considered a poison, depending on how much of it you give. Well, listen, Wait. my would-be toxicologists, before you bury the lead on this week's creepy, announce what we will be slipping into your ears this week, which is part one of a two-part episode on toxicology and poisons, part of our Shocktober comeback. Ooh. Ooh. Spooktacular. My dear Josh, this pearl is for thee. Well, good news. If you've ever wondered if the poisoning that took place in Hamlet is realistic, we fact-check Shakespeare this episode. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But let's get into a little bit of the history first. Now, if we're going to be talking about poisons and toxicology, we should probably mention the father of toxicology, Paracelsus, 
which, Ward, I think you're our resident toxicologist, or the closest we have. Do you know Paracelsus's true name and why he chose that moniker? Um, in our training, we do train at the New York Poison Control Center, but they're not that old school, so we don't go all the way back to Paracelsus. Why did he pick that name? So Paracelsus chose his name from his belief that his studies were above or beyond the work of Celsus, a Roman physician from the first century. But his actual name... And it's so much fun to say. Is <laughs> Theophrastus Philippus Aureolus Bombastus von Hohenheim the third? That's like such a better name. His name is my name too. Like let's, all, let's all give it one more shot. Theophrastus Philippus Aureolus Bombastus von Hohenheim the third. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> Whenever we go out, the people always shout. <laughs> now, uh, we are talking about more medieval history, right, Josh? When the study of poisoning in the Western world became really studied. Because we actually have histories of poisoning all the way back to, like, prehistoric findings. We've got archaeological findings back to 4500 B.C., We've got people who've studied poisonings in India and ancient Egypt and Rome. So we're, we're kind of, we're going to bracket this in a little more modern era to when these poisons were kind of studied in a more rigorous fashion. Oh, welcome to season four, people. <laughs> Jumping straight into the Victorian era. Mr. Theophrastus Philippus Aureolus Bombastus von Hohenheim III <laughs> was a major player when it came to toxicology he is credited with the classic maxim of toxicology which is that all things are poisonous and nothing is without poison only the dose makes a thing safe which is usually condensed to the phrase uh, the dose makes the poison or sola dosis facit venenum and it's absolutely true you know those people who make all the jokes about like water poisoning Mm -hmm. Um, certainly water is something we can't live without, but you have too much and it can kill you. Yeah, especially if you breathe it in. Oh, uh, you're such a drip. <laughs> Prior to Paracelsus throwing his toxic hat in the ring, the main way of viewing health was by Roman physician Galen, mm-hmm. who postulated you know, the, the four humors in the body, blood, phlegm, yellow, and black bile, which when they were in balance, somebody was healthy, and when there was an imbalance, you got sick. Now, Paracelsus, on the other hand, was an alchemist and believed in only three humors. Salt, which represented stability. Mm-hmm. Sulfur, that represented excitability. And mercury, representing liquidity or a change between the two. And he defined disease as a separation of one humor from the other two. So Galenists believed a disease of a certain intensity would be cured by a medicine of opposite intensity. Too much hot, treat with cold. Too much wet, treat with dry. But Paracelsus and his followers instead put forth the position that like cures like. So a poison in the body would be cured by a similar poison, you know, a little bit of hair of the dog. But the dosage is very important. So this is how he defended his use of inorganic substances in medicine, because most of his critics were like, stop poisoning people. (laughs) Why are you poisoning people? And when we say inorganic here, we're not talking about like, oh, he forgot to get it from Whole Foods. We're saying non-carbon containing compounds. So metallic elements like mercury and arsenic versus protein poison that would be derived from something like a plant or a bacteria or fungus. Now, in the 19th century, 
toxicologists drawing on Paracelsus and a couple others who came along the way would very often participate as experts in criminal poisoning trials and wrote a whole bunch of reports at the request of judges and lawyers. These were usually first aid because most of the time, first aid was provided by the family or friends of the victim long, long before they could reach a physician. So physicians would write a whole bunch of books on the subject explaining to lay audience what they should do if someone was poisoned. Now, here's where we give the disclaimer. We're going to tell you about a lot of cool poisonings and the effects. Please don't go out and poison anybody. <laughs> and please don't turn to us as your first resource for either how to commit poison <laughs> or how to cure it. You really should call poison control for any and all of these. This is for educational purposes only. That's the second disclaimer of the episode, but probably Maybe not more the to last. Come. So, if we're going to start with poisons, we should probably start with the most classic of the old poisons, which, of course, is arsenic. So, historically, the most famous arsenic poisoners were the Borgia family in the Middle Ages. And, you know, it was said that a little arsenic improved the taste of wine, mm -hmm. and the gracious Borgias made sure their guests had the best-tasting wine possible. <laughs> now... Arsenic actually, aside from being used as a poison, was actually used far and wide in a lot of different applications. You are correct that as a classic poison, arsenic is an element and usually found as a white powder arsenic trioxide. So it's not necessarily great to put arsenic, <laughs> but you definitely don't swallow it. And I, I'm going to give you my last little bit of history, and then I'm going to turn it over to our ER MacGyver to tell you what arsenic will actually do to you. So it was very popular as a poison in the 17th and 18th centuries, and it gains the nickname inheritance powder because it was used uh, quite frequently in disposing of spouses or relatives because it was easy to obtain, odorless, tasteless, and can be introduced gradually in small doses. So very little was required and little more than the size of a pea could be a lethal dose in a lot of people. So, inheritance powder. Well, I was going to say, there are better ways to get an inheritance, like getting mm -hmm. your grandparents to like you. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> if that doesn't work, I, I guess arsenic. We don't see too much arsenic poisoning in the United States nowadays. It still gets, the, it, from industrial applications, arsenic gets in, into the water from mining operations and uh, industrial operations. So a lot of times the arsenic may actually even combine with lead. So places like, say, Flint, Michigan, with a lot of lead pipes may be getting trace right. elements of arsenic poisoning as well. Any of the heavy metals, your body can't re easily get rid of it and accumulate it. It can, have, it can have toxic effects. Now, just like lead, arsenic has a lot of GI effects. You know, this is not something you want to swallow. Um, symptoms, I think, begin around 30 minutes after ingestion, and initially you'll see fatigue, headache, numbness. You may also notice a slight metallic taste in the mouth, and a victim's breath may develop an odor resembling Sounds that. Sounds like quite a buzz. And I think on the cellular level, it interferes with the respiration like on a cellular level with the remember back in the medical school days when cells oxidize pyruvate into acetylcholate and NAD, all these enzymes that arsenic and other heavy metals get in there and poison that mechanism. And then the cells can't really use oxygen for energy and you develop lactic acidosis. Cyanide does that too. Cyanide, cyanide poisons another arm of that reaction. So I know arsenic definitely causes a bunch of severe gastric 
problems if taken in large doses. So this is not the casual little bit in the morning coffee, but just you know, shoving a chunk of arsenic down someone's throat, you can get esophageal pain, vomiting, diarrhea with blood. If they're given a very high dose, which the autopsy will find only an inflamed stomach with barely any traces of arsenic in the digestive tract, mm. which I guess mm. if you're going to poison somebody, that's the way to go. But again, please don't do that. Now, since arsenic is an element, the body doesn't actually break it down. So it remains in the victim's hair, fingernails, and urine. So any death that occurs, you'll still find arsenic in the liver and kidneys after about several days, whereas longer-term poisoning will cause loss of sensation in the hands and feet, numbing throughout the body, swelling and skin irritations, hair loss, visual impairment, and eventually heart failure. It almost sounds very similar to some of the long-term complications that you might see with untreated diabetes. Mm. Yeah. Now, I, mm. I should do a little shout-out here in the middle because as much as it is a poison for human beings, arsenic actually is a, it's a pretty good poison for pretty much anything living. Um, and we, good poison? Yeah. Is there such a thing? Well, we have actually harnessed um, the power of arsenic from time to time as an antibacterial. And so we're talking about uh, all the way in the past, all the way up to arsenic-containing compounds to treat like African sleeping sickness. It, it is quite useful in its ability to poison things other than humans. But as you can imagine, if you use it, you're putting the host at risk just as much as the pathogen. Question about arsenic. Is it one of those ironic names or is it actually flammable or can be used to start fires or explosions. I don't think it's named after arsons. <laughs> Ar- arsonists. Uh, you know, oh, you know, I haven't gotten yeah. I haven't gotten etymology in a while. Let's take a brief aside. It it came to Latin from Greek and to Greek from Persian. The Middle Persian zarnik, uh, which developed eventually later to zarnica and arsenic, meant gold colored, but the Greek form of the word comes from masculine, which is arson, gotcha. which means male, strong, powerful, and arsenal poetis <laughs> is lying with nice. uh, huh. in well, the New Testament. So makes sense. this is quite literally the, the most masculine <laughs> poison that you could find, and it was used to make gold. Very gold. nice. <laughs> and then if you wore those dyed materials, you would slowly die <laughs> yeah exactly. die yourself. <laughs> yeah josh i've got to say um it's it's kind of cool and we'll bring this up uh in our modern poisons episode i'm sure but arsenic of course has followed us all the way to the modern era and there was a time when people were trying to develop a magic bullet you know like the one uh, compound that could treat everything and anything. And because arsenic was such a good killer of all things living, it was experimented on arsenic dyes as, you know, kind of like the panacea for all things infectious. So, um, yeah, it, it's an interesting little compound. Um, but yeah, it, it will definitely poison the host as much as the pathogen. <laughs> Now, remember, arsenic is being used in a lot of medical applications <laughs> today, not because doctors are poisoning right. you, but because the dose makes the poison, which is something we are going to keep coming back to. So let's move on to our next poison, which is another classic, and we'll go with cyanide since we were bringing it up. Now, let's start with the good 
BuzzFeed Fox News scary headline. <laughs> Cyanide. Could it be in the things that your children are eating? Find out tonight. <laughs> Spoiler alert. The answer is yes. <laughs> like, the way they, That's they how they ask the question, you yeah, know absolutely. the answer is yes. <laughs> you know? <laughs> It, it was kind of a cool selective kind of poison, right? Because it it won't really hurt, you know, as, as we're talking about coevolution, it won't hurt the animals which, like, if they eat the whole fruit uh, along with the seed and then poop the seed out someplace else so you can make a new tree, um, it won't harm those animals as much, but those other animals which can grind up the seeds and actually destroy the possibility of making the plant. It's, you know, it, it, it poisons that way. A lot like how um, capsaicin, the spicy stuff in chili peppers, how that stuff developed. So cyanide ah. is present in cherry pits, in apricot pits, in apple seeds, and it's not generally harmful unless it's ground up. So if you've yeah. accidentally swallowed an apple seed, you're not going <laughs> to poop out an apple tree, you're not going to get cyanide poisoning. You know, but if you are grinding it into a fine powder, you might run into a little bit of yeah. in fact, apple. And you have to eat yeah. a lot of it, not just one apple one apple seed. You have to eat a bunch of them. I think, now, apricot pits are actually used to make latrial, an anti-cancer drug. So again, this is going to be yeah. one of those compounds where we see the dose makes the poison. Well, modern and nowadays, we actually do see a lot of cyanide poisoning. And that's not because people are eating apricot pits, because fires... Actually, a lot of man-made materials, plastics, when they burn, they release cyanide. So it's actually carbon monoxide poisoning and cyanide poisoning are two of the things that can happen in addition to thermal burns in Absolutely. a in a fire situation. That may actually kill people earlier, especially um, than the burn itself, because it prevents the body from getting oxygen and metabolizing them, and these are the complications yeah. we mentioned earlier. Spot on, Praz. Yeah, so cyanide can be swallowed, inhaled, or absorbed through the skin, and through all three of those forms, it interferes with the red cell's ability to extract oxygen. So our, our cells can still take oxygen in, but then we're not able to make use of it, which causes an internal asphyxia. You basically suck the inside out. <laughs> uh, so essentially what's happening is you can have all the oxygen kind of available to you in the air and going into your lungs, but when cyanide, and it's a really tiny molecule, it's just one carbon triple bonded to a nitrogen, um, when that binds to hemoglobin, which is normally supposed to carry oxygen, you can no longer remove the oxygen from the air and bind it to hemoglobin. So right there, while you're breathing fresh air and normal air, you can still be dying unless you get the cyanide off of the hemoglobin. Now... At low doses, this will cause things like headaches, vertigo, confusion, exactly what you would expect if you were low oxygen, say, high altitude, if you go back and listen to our early, early season one episode. But if inhaled in the form of a large gas or two, it can cause coma with seizures, apnea, and cardiac arrest with death following in a matter of seconds. It's kind of cool, isn't it, that after the death, the autopsy yep. is so old school. You yeah. know, it's cherry red in <laughs> color, and the skin uh, is you know, pinker than usual. Cyanide isn't terribly easy to detect, I believe, <laughs> in the bloodstream. Like we don't, we don't have it on common toxicology screens. And the bitter almond odor, you know, that's just so old school sounding. And we all learned, yeah, that you can recognize cyanide poisoning by sniffing for a bitter almond odor. But here's the problem: 
only 40% of people can detect that bitter almond odor for genetic reasons. Mm-hmm. So just like or be able to smell genetic. asparagus Ooh. urine. Yeah, or be able to see colors. You have a genetic predisposition for whether or not you can detect oh, yeah. cyanide poisoning. So hopefully you'll never have to find that out. Now, unfortunately, historically, the most famous cyanide poisonings came in the German extermination camps during World War II, and it was given the title of Zyklon B, used to murder uh, Russian and Jewish prisoners of war at Auschwitz, as well as the other camps. So most of what we know about its effects on the body, as well as what we now do to treat it, comes out of that time. Now, Ward, you said we do still see cyanide poisonings in the ER. Absolutely. What do you do when somebody comes yes. in with cyanide poisoning? Oh, wow. Well, it's so common that uh, most ERs actually stock a cyanide antidote kit. And in the kit, it's it's actually kind of old school. They have little pearls of amyl nitrate. Uh, you break the pearls. The little pearls cause a amyl nitrate is what on the streets people call it poppers. It's a nitrate that can blind, uh, bind to your hemoglobin. So remember, cyanide causes death by poisoning your hemoglobin. Amyl nitrate turns your blood back. It undoes the poisoning on the molecular level on the hemoglobin itself. This antidote itself can be a poison because amyl nitrate, when you just sniff it, it can cause a condition called methemoglobinemia. And that in itself can kill you. So you have to do it just right. There's actually a much more effective and cheap, well, I don't know about cheaper, but uh, more harmless antidote. And that's just vitamin B12 in IV form. For whatever reason, it's super expensive. And it's it's just this this bag of red looking. Yeah, it's expensive. It's not cheap. It is ironic, but for th- that specific purpose, I don't know why it's not cheap. Just get IV vitamin. So that CN, that C triple bond N, uh, kind of attached to B12 so that it, the vitamin can actually continue to do its metabolic processes in the body. It's it's so dumb that this stuff is overpriced because you can find it on, you know, like mega doses of vitamin B sports drinks, for God's sakes. Sounds like somebody's sipping their haterade. Yeah, <laughs> and this hater rate is a million dollars per pack. <laughs> so good luck. The next of the classic trio of poisons, and when I say classic trio, I'm of course referring to the poisons used in the wonderful horror movie *Arsenic and Old Lace*, starring Cary Grant. I loved it when he sang that song, "Dying in the Rain." That version didn't make it to the <laughs> movies. No, no, I think that was like a. It was a deep cut. So. Uh, the third of the deadly trio, the tragic trio, is, of course, the poison strychnine, which is not as fast-acting as cyanide or arsenic. It's, a, again, a colorless powder with a bitter taste that can be slipped unnoticed into a strong drink. And the symptoms begin in 10 to 20 minutes with the victim's face and neck becoming stiff. Then the arms and legs will spasm, and soon the whole body becomes in this arch position with a head and feet on the floor. So you either die from asphyxiation, which is what you see with cyanide, or sheer exhaustion from the convulsions and spasms, which is a little bit with arsenic. So you would combine these three into a delightful cocktail. And after death, rigor mortis sets right. in almost instantly, leaving the body in a convulsed position. Now, strychnine used to be sold as rat poison, 
and was therefore readily available at every local Walgreens and pharmacy in, back in the day. Yeah, yeah. I'm, we're talking about as recently as maybe like the 1920s or 30s. Like people would sprinkle this around their house. I'm not sure if we still yeah. use it, but yeah, that's what I, I... I don't know if they still use it for like badger poisoning or raccoon poisoning somewhere. But we're not seeing a lot of strychnine poisoning nowadays. But it is on the differential diagnoses when you see someone quote-unquote seizing. And it's interesting because it's not a true seizure. A seizure comes from the brain. It's a central nervous. Your brain is firing in a storm. This happens at the peripheral nervous system where your muscles are spasming. And it's more like a tetanus situation. I think in a lot of ways it's even more awful because you're awake and conscious when this is happening. With a complex seizure, you're actually out. You're not feeling your muscles convulsing and everything else. Here, you're awake and aware and you can't, you can't fight your body actually like bucking and trying to ba- break itself in half. Not a good way to I go. Think yeah. nowadays, I think nowadays we tend to use Coumadin as, as rat poison. I think so. Yeah, I've heard that as well. I will warn all of our listeners that you may occasionally find this, especially in the Far East. Strychnine is still marketed for like as rat poison. Now, one actual person with cyanide deaths, a very famous cyanide death, was Alan Turing, who committed suicide by poisoned apple. Yeah, that's right. The reasoning behind Turing's suicide was sadly very wow. clear. He was basically forced into it just for by virtue of being dead. He ate an apple, he had dipped in cyanide, and everyone was very confused until a couple friends pointed out his fascination with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Yeah, the poisoned apple. Oh, that's... Yeah. Now let's go on to a couple poisons that maybe are not as well known as the big three. Uh, one of the ones that I don't know if you guys have even heard of was thallium. Thallium like the metal? Thallium? Yes, thallium as an element. First discovered by the British chemist William Crookes, who noted that uh, it had a bright green line in its emission chemical spectrum. So he named it from the Greek word thallos, that means green shoot. Now, the toxicity was actually discovered almost immediately. Experiments in which he fed the compound to animals saw all of the test subjects die within a couple days. So it was used... Uh, as a rat poison, as an insecticide in the early 1900s. It was also used cosmetically to remove hair from the skin. This was the earliest version of Nair. <laughs> Why? Well, I, I mean, I, I've got to admit that all of this stuff, you know, it was derived mostly from plants that you could find easily available around. And, you know, everybody just wanted to use this stuff to, like, look pretty. Arsenic and, and cyanide and all this other stuff, thallium. What is up with people? You know, considering people would eat tapeworms to tape to stay thin, uh, there's a lot of extremes. I don't think I'd put anything past anyone. Yeah. <laughs> well, but at, at some points, like, in, in our history, this stuff was just in vogue. And and I don't know. Have you guys ever done um, what? What's that <laughs> new fad? Um, boot camp. That <laughs> is freaking yeah, painful. So yeah. I don't know if thallium. I'd rather do well, thallium than boot camp. Thallium itself was known, just like arsenic became known as inheritance powder. Thallium gains the nickname 
The Poisoner's Poison. Oh, okay. So this is like the the comics comic. The it's like you're you're only like a good poisoner if you can use this poison. That's the reason Thallium was you know the Poisoner's Poisoner, the King of Poison. That's the Mitch Hedberg of poisons. <laughs> well, unless it's given in a high dose, Thallium is another agent that exerts its effects very very slowly. The earliest symptoms are non-specific, including. This GI problem, okay. such as vomiting or nausea, and for up to four days after the initial symptoms of poisoning, victims can look and feel as though they are in normal health. So constipation can be a characteristic sign, but it's not one that's likely to cause you know undue concern in the victim. So you know you go out, you have something, you're like, oh well, maybe I ate at a bad restaurant the other night, and now I'm a little constipated, and. Then, several days to a week later, you get the more unpleasant sick symptoms, such as pains in the extremities as a consequence of nerve damage, excessive thirst, insomnia, and two weeks into the poisoning, you'll start to see the characteristic signs, which is a very dark pigmentation that appears around the roots of the hair that then rapidly progresses to complete loss of the hair and alopecia, or balding in patches. And this is usually when people start getting wise to the fact that they've been poisoned. Their skin will become dry and scaly, and white lines, referred to as knees lines, appear on the fingernails. <gasps> oh my god! Could this be another, like, White Walker syndrome from Game of Thrones? It sort of sounds like oh. it. You can get severe blindness and nerve damage. And eventually, death is due to either respiratory failure or cardiac arrest. And the main reason for this is the body can't distinguish between thallium and potassium. So instead of using potassium for the body rolls, it'll incorporate thallium ions. And anywhere you would have potassium used in the body, and anywhere you would have potassium used in the body, thallium basically stops it up. Now, the reason that we may not be as familiar with it is because this was a hugely popular poison in, of all places, Australia. Yeah, right. Crikey. (laughs) So in the early 1950s, there was a huge number of cases of murder or attempted murder by thallium. And this was due to the chronic rat infestation problems in overcrowded inner city suburbs like Sydney and thallium's effectiveness as a rat poison. It was over it was over the counter. And it was marketed as commercial rat bait under the brand Thalrat. That's a rather cute nickname. And um. We, we should mention at this point, now that we've done a couple of rat poisons, the symptoms that we're mentioning right now in humans, of course you should watch out for, especially if you have little kids crawling around and they'll put anything in their mouths. If you see these kind of rat poisons, please actually watch out for your pets as well, because they might suffer from some of these things and you might not be able to figure out what it is and it's actually like a rodent poison. Yeah, so the, there's an Australian TV documentary recipe for murder that was released in 2011, and it examined three of the seven different housewife thallium poisoning cases uh, <laughs> that took place over the 1950s. A couple of them are just... July 1953, Sydney woman Beryl Haig was tried for maliciously administering thallium and endangering her husband's life. She confessed to putting it in her tea because she wanted to give him a headache to repay the many headaches he had given me over the years. 
She was actually just trying to give the dude a headache, and it went. No, a little she was bad. trying to murder him. Oh, okay. <laughs> she knew exactly what she was doing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. If she were trying to. She were trying to give him a headache. He could have just invited her mother over wow. for dinner. Okay. And this is. Yeah. Another Australian, Caroline Grills, was sentenced to life in prison after three family members and a close family friend died. Authorities found thallium and tea that she had given to two additional family members on top of those four. And she spent the rest of her life in Sydney's Long Bay Jail, where fellow inmates dubbed her Aunt Thally. Well, <laughs> All right, that's pretty good. I like that. Okay. And then, of course, Agatha Christie, who worked as a pharmacist, which you may not be aware of, used Thallium as the agent of murder in several of her fiction novels. That is old-timey. Yeah, yeah. Now, this novel was so well-read. Like, Agatha Christie was such a popular author that she was credited with having saved at least two lives after her readers recognized the symptoms of thallium poisoning in friends or family members because they Agatha Christie had described them in her book. Really, Thallium is one that is much better known, I guess, by the British Empire than the American, but still made it quite over the place. Now, if you are poisoned, Ward, are you familiar with how to treat thallium poisoning? There's actually poor literature on treatment of thallium. I think the only only thing that's borne out to be moderately effective is Prussian blue. They've tried other antidotes like dimercaptrol, which is what we use for lead poisoning, because, you know, thallium being a heavy metal is somewhat similar to lead. Its effects are not, so, it's the, not very effective. So I yeah, think the dimercaptrol in this yeah. case is what's called a chelating agent. It actually sucks up metals. And pen- penicillamine is also sometimes used for lead, but not not very effective. The only thing that's kind of borne out is supportive care and Prussian blue. Now that we're getting rarer and rarer, let's go to famous cases of poisoning and talk a little bit about the poison. I did promise you earlier that we were going to possibly debunk Shakespeare. If you remember Hamlet, uh, the actual poison used was henbane, which is extracted from the seeds and leaves of Hyosiamus niger and Scopolia carnolica, plants that belong to the Solanaceae okay. family, which also is the same family as potatoes, eggplant peppers. Ah! <laughs> Unless you're smoking your potatoes. I think you're Wait, okay. what? I can't smoke my potatoes. <laughs> so Hyosiamus and Scopolia both contain the active ingredients scopolamine or hyoscine and hyosiamine. Do you happen to recall in Hamlet how Hamlet's father actually? Uh, how Hamlet's father? So uh, you're you're talking about his dad or his uncle? Hamlet's uncle murdered his father in like the orchard with a poison dagger. Was that right? He poured poison into his ear, which was then absorbed. It was the uncle in the orchard with the ear poison. Yeah, he dripped it into his ear. That's right. I shall pour a sweet poison into his ear. That's right. Okay. That always struck me as a little bit odd. I would think once you've made up your mind to commit murder, okay, fine. You know, poison his wild boar or stab him through a curtain or convince him that his wife is cheating on him and have him murder her in a jealous rage. I mean, Shakespeare had so many wonderful ways to kill people. It seems like just pouring something into the ear was a little bit of a cop-out. So I went digging to find out if this was actually possible and thanks to a wonderful journal. Which, I'm sure uh, someone's researched this already. Someone had to have gone back and said, I wonder what poison killed Hamlet's pop. Journal mm-hmm. of Otolaryngology, uh, Head and Neck Medicine. 
basically released a study on this a couple of years ago where they did look into it. So <laughs> scop- that was a slow month for absorption of scopolamine through the skin is limited, although we actually use it in our day-to-day lives for the prevention of motion sickness. Yeah, I use it all the time for preoperative nausea, vomiting, all that stuff. There it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's also a palliative care medicine. Right. It dries. It helps to dry up secretion. I'm just laughing because so it, it's. Uh, <laughs> I'm. I'm. Th- we. We. Well, we trans. We transitioned from funny. like he poured poison into his ear and it killed him. And Proz was like, "Oh yeah, I use that all the time." <laughs> yeah, Proz. Doc. The Dr. Sandman likes to uh, pour some poison into his ear, die, and then come back to life the next day. This disclaimer I made is much and much less credible as this episode goes on. Well, yeah. the reason that scopolamine is great for motion sickness and apparently also great as a poison that we'll learn later is that it crosses the blood-brain barrier very, very easily, meaning the usual defenses that our central nervous system put up to prevent things from getting into it, uh, scopolamine just steps right around all of those. And the half-life of scopolamine in blood is about three hours, and its toxic dose is as low as 10 milligrams. 10 milligrams. A gram is a paperclip, right? So that's the mass of about a paperclip. That gram is a thousand milligrams. Now that sounds, so far that sounds like very (laughs) easy to slip into someone's ears. Right. It it would be just like, you know, a tiny little size of a you dropper. It would probably be mixed in oil or something so that it could easily diffuse, you know, through the the membranes in there um, through the, uh, the skin, essentially. In order for this to work, the tympanic membrane actually has to be perforated. So someone would actually have to like poke a hole straight through the eardrum and, in order to inject this. Well, I mean, way back then, you know, you could have had either chronic ear infections and had a permanent perf, which it was not too uncommon. Or you could have put it in with a little bit of caustic material so that it would cause the perf and then slip in. In particular case, I believe Hamlet's father like sat up and screamed and then he went down. Like he was able to shout once and then he just went down. Doctors think that he did have a tympanic membrane perforation because the skin that lines the ear canal is pretty tightly adherent to the underlying bone and cartilage. But because it's so thin and so tight, it's very vulnerable to mechanical damage like a scratch. This is why we're always telling people, don't shove Q-tips in your ears. Don't shove anything in your ears because you can make them become inflamed. It's more capable. So an inflamed ear, such as one with an ear infection, is more capable of absorbing drugs because that tight skin is, becomes even tighter and more porous. Or... Uh, The possibility of murder via the ear was known to occur in 16th and 17th century Italy, and that was based on knowledge of that time about direct absorption of some substances from the ear. Or in perforations, the middle ear has a lot of vascularity, a lot of blood vessels that go all the way up to the brain and around the head, and they're connected to the pharynx by the eustachian tube. You know, chronic ear infections and tympanic membrane perforations were not uncommon in Shakespeare's time. So there's some documented evidence that fluids in the middle ear or that docs in that time knew fluids in the middle ear could pass into the pharynx. So the effective concentration of scopolamine is very, very low. So even until a few years ago, 
uh, anesthesia would use about half a milligram uh, during the pre-anesthesia period. Right, Pras? But not since I've been practicing. No. <laughs> yeah. Pras is like, but, no, but no. it's not me, guys. I mean, we've, we've come a very long way in the field of anesthesiology since, like, you know, using ether um, or alcohol or, you know, just something to kind of suffocate or, or just zonk people out, you know, without, you know, kind of careful dosing and stuff. But this was, um, this was early when anesthesia was a, it was a miracle when we could actually, for the first time ever, um, have people sleep right through like an appendectomy or an amputation, um, without having to like smack them with a hammer. We'll end with perhaps the oldest of the poisonings I researched, and probably one of the more famous. After one of the oldest cases of poisonings was, of course, Bill and Ted's famous philosopher Socrates. Socrates. Now, how many of you know how Socrates died? Socrates. Socrates was made to take poison, right? Like he was. He was executed. Is that right? Basically, he was going around teaching people via the Socratic method. He was a controversial figure in the city. He wasn't particularly liked. You know, we all think of him as sitting around in that big robe saying, well, why does this occur? And having these wonderful Socratic discussions. But what he ended up actually doing was just starting verbal debate fights. He would walk down the street and you'd bump into yeah. him like, oh shit, it's Socrates. And he's like, why would you say oh shit? Um, and they're like, uh, I hate dealing with you. And what does it mean to hate dealing with me? And, you know, he was just, he was a real jerk, basically. And he publicly right. questioned the gods that Athenians worshipped at the time. So apparently, you know, he was brought up on charges and he supposedly could have escaped Athens after he was found guilty. But then he chose to stay on principle. He didn't even try to convince the jury he was innocent. He just started another argument with them about how they could be <laughs> executing him so much better and there were other things. Sure, so, you know, sure. Like, okay. He's not this charming figure that he's often represented as. First Amendment rights were not a thing back in, <laughs> back in historical Athens. So hem- yeah. he was forced to eat hemlock, and hemlock causes a gradual weakening of the muscles and intense pain as the muscles deteriorate and die. So sight is lost, hearing is lost, but the mind itself remains clear until death occurs, and symptoms begin in 30 minutes, though it takes several wow. hours to die. So that it is still used today. Ward, have you seen much hemlock poisoning? <laughs> no, I... I I have not treated Socrates recently. <laughs> um, and, uh, but, you know, just because I haven't seen it does not mean it doesn't happen. This part of hemlock is the alkaloid conine, which has a chemical structure very similar to nicotine. So it disrupts the central nervous system and blocks the neuromuscular junction, which is how your body signals to each muscle that it can move, contract, move and it wow. eventually stops your ability to breathe and again causes you to suffocate according yeah. to christian mythology the hemlock plant only became poisonous after oh, growing on the hillside of jesus's crucifixion and okay, when his i wonder blood i wonder where that came from because i'm certain toxic. it was you know used in poisonings way before you know like one ce so, <laughs> comes from the old english homeless 
which was the name of a tree, again, plants trying to kill us. Other names for hemlock include Woomlick, Beaver Poison, Poison Parsley, Devil's Flower, Break Your Mother's Heart, Scabby Hands, and Lady's Lace. <laughs> Which, everything that you're saying, I should say that, I mean, really what the plants are trying to do is save themselves. You know, they're just trying to live and not just be consumed by anything that walks along. So, you know, it just happened to be accidentally poisoned because you know we're trying to eat something you know and it's just trying to preserve its life the last fact i want to share about hemlock is that the state bird of california the quail often eat hemlock routinely because they are completely immune to the poison but the flesh from just one of these birds that's eaten hemlock is still enough to paralyze a man so now it's birds and plants are in on a big conspiracy. Oh, that's so cool! Over and then they become poisonous to the birds. That right. try to or eat them. monarch butterflies—they're not poisonous cool. until they eat that poisonous. Oh, there's conspiracies yeah. everywhere in yep. nature. <laughs> so that's that's a little bit like uh, the tetrodotoxin that the pufferfish get um, in in fugu. Actually, so the the tetrodotoxin um, is actually taken up by the pufferfish when they eat the bacteria that make the toxin, and the toxin gets into their flesh. So that's kind of like a, a fish bacteria conspiracy, a little bit like the hemlock quail. Santosh, I believe, Santosh, I believe you had just one more poison to add to our old poisons list, and then we'll wrap it up for the week. Yeah, and I really love this particular poison because it's been seen as good and bad by both the lay community and the medical community kind of throughout the history. And this is digitalis compounds, um, more, more commonly found in foxglove. We've heard about foxglove all the way from Withering's treatise on foxglove in um, 1785. And way back when, you know, way back then we were talking about a disease called dropsy, which was you fainted, you know, and the reason for this fainting usually was, oh, I've got dropsy, dunk. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So uh, dropsy is just like that. And it's usually because of heart failure and the digitalis compound uh, that you find in the foxglove plant. They said that, oh, you can just use a handful of foxglove leaves in a, in a half a pint of water and, and give that liquor to your husband. Cure the dropsy for a little bit because the heart beats a little bit stronger and the, the arrhythmia goes away. You know, as time went on, we found out that what we called the therapeutic index or the therapeutic window, which is the little um, dosage window inside of which the, this thing is a treatment rather than being where it's going to turn into a poison. That little therapeutic window was teeny, teeny tiny for digitalis. We have um, homicidal use of digitalis in fictional writings. Mary Webb in the 19th century, a book called Precious Bane. The hearts like to burst sometimes. I suppose a dose of foxglove had put her right, maybe. So her brother was actually saying, oh, you know, she's, she's so, you know, like kind of overly sensitive. Maybe we should just give her a little bit of foxglove. 
We did have some very real homicides that were used by the name of the notorious Nurse Becker, um, who used it to actually, uh, you know, kind of quietly kill the elderly as she worked. You could simulate a heart attack. And the digitalis wasn't terribly traceable. It was not that uncommon to see digitalis poisoning in the 80s, 90s. And, you know, um, now it's not that common because we don't use digitalis anymore much anymore but even when you're trying to take it right even when you're trying to take it correctly uh sometimes you can run into toxicity and and so you'd grow foxglove out there and then you just kind of drop it in the tea and brew it and then oh the old man died of a heart attack oh well you know this is another one of those plants that um your pets can get a hold of so please watch out for it and that wraps up our episode Now, for this week's Just the Tip, I figured we would visit a famous poison garden known for something other than its garden, which, of course, would be Blarney Castle in Cork, Ireland. The main attraction is the Blarney Stone, which is a block of limestone built into the battlements of Blarney Castle, which if you hang upside down by your legs, and people will have to hold you, oh, yeah, two uh, tour guides there to do just that, and you... <laughs> and it supposedly endows the kisser with the gift of gab, great eloquence or skill at flattery. Basically, you get like all the pickup lines that you want to right there on the tip of your tongue. Yeah, and I got to tell you, <laughs> putting your lips to a piece of <laughs> porous stone that at Herpes least for a everybody people have kissed in the days before you seems like a pretty good. <laughs> well, way I, to I guess that would give you ready. something to talk about. Where'd you get that rash on your lip? Well, let me tell you, I've got a story for you. <laughs> now, uh, yeah, but also on the grounds of Blarney Castle is a very well-known poison garden hidden behind the castle battlements where the plants are so dangerous and toxic they can be kept in large cages and structures. A small shout-out to our friends at the uh, United States NSA. If by chance you've been following our uh, Google searches for the past uh, week or so, we were just doing research for this podcast. Well, that wraps it up for this week. As always, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Squarespace, or wherever you download your podcasts. We love to hear from you, your comments, questions, and concerns. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, you can do that at any of the links attached in the show notes. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts and guests. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Ledger. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye.